0: Socialist Think Tank Origins is simply about socialism, what socialism is, what it means to people and how it can improve our lives. We speak to people from a variety of backgrounds, both well-known and unknown, to find out what they think socialism is and develop the ideas around socialism. hello and welcome to socialist think tank today we're here with joe glenton hi joel hello mate hi um can you tell us a little bit about yourself to start off with
1: so my name's joe glenton as you've heard um i'm a defense journalist cover all kinds of foreign policy military um loads of veteran stuff Um, I worked for the Canary, I also worked for an organisation called Forces Watch, which is a kind of military watchdog, if you like, for want of a better term. Um, Before I was a journalist, many years ago, for my sins, I was a soldier for six years, served in Afghanistan and a couple of other places around the world. Um, And uh, that experience was pretty central, I suppose, to me, ending up where I am, with a a deep interest in the military, um, what it does and how it works.
0: Yeah, so when you're talking about things, you're not speaking from sort of a hypothetical point of view, like I normally would if we're talking about things like that, like you've lived this.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's, I mean, you can, I always say people can come to understand this particular institution or broader things like war or foreign policy, Um, but I hope it gives me a unique perspective having experienced some of it from the inside, really.
0: Okay, so we're going to go into the question then. And I suppose this is, this is going to be a different perspective than some of our viewers have seen in the past. So what is socialism to you?
1: I think on a fundamental level, um, it's just sharing. It's just sharing stuff on a really basic level. It's just about... In fact, some of my, my um, socialist ideas actually come from the military. And it's not what some of you would think you would find socialist values, but it places a, places a high emphasis on looking after your mates. I mean, it's a flawed system, of course, but that stuff is in there, like looking after people around you, sharing stuff, helping each other through hardships um, and adverse conditions. And so some of it certainly has has sprung from there. I think on a more, um, obviously we don't want to get too theoretical, I suppose more broadly than that, it means that the people who make the stuff that we all need to live uh, make the decisions about how they do it. uh, And they're in control of how things are. Things are produced, what things are produced, the timescale they're produced on and where they go in the end. I suppose that's really what it comes down to. It's some kind of democratic control of the things that are made, of the economy, if you like, but the stuff that is made that we need to live, whatever that may be. We make it and we should be in charge of how it's, um, how it's um, developed, how it's produced and where it goes.
0: I think a lot of people would be sitting listening to that and thinking, well, you really can't say fairer than that, can you? You, you know, it's, these are, these are values that most of us should be able to get behind. Yeah. And you mentioned as well about, um, about learning these things in the military. I remember a story I was told, um, about how difficult it was at the end of world war two to break down the Germans and they came and said, was it your political ideology? Was it the fact that you're a Nazi and things and they were laughing at them I'd Say, "No, it was because I was fighting for the, for the lives of my friends. I suppose that's probably what you're talking about there, isn't it? Like, like
1: camaraderie, that... Yeah, def- as I said, it's um, it's a, it's you know, it's a flawed model, but I think like a lot, like as a working class person joining the military, one of the rationales that people have for doing that is they want to do something which they feel is socially valuable, which they feel will contribute something, but also they want to be with people, they want to be in a team, they want to do stuff together, they want to have that camaraderie. Now, the problem with the military, of course, especially Western professional militaries, um, like the British Army, is that they take that need um, for human solidarity, and then they say, right, now you're all in a gang, go and kill those people over there. Uh, But it is one of the places that you can, when you're in the military, you can see some of that. You can see elements of it. That is not to say any military, any professional military is socialist by a long stretch. But it is one of the few places where you can see that um, develop. The tragedy is that it's then squandered, invading places like Iraq and Afghanistan, bombing Libya and Syria. But there is something at the core of it. The military is very good at um, making out, convincing people that that is a place to go where you can have those things. And there are like atoms of truth in it. There are small elements of truth um, that there are some socialist-ish things within, the mili- within a military community.
0: I don't see, I, I think you would probably be blowing a few people's minds here with the idea because like maybe people go in with those values and I suppose what you're talking about there as well is the adverts for them. So we've all seen the adverts on the TV, join the army and it's definitely that kind of the social side of it and fighting for your, for your yep. mates and your countrymen and, and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Um, how, how do those adverts bear up to reality?
1: Um, again, it's, there are elements that are like germs of the truth. It's not the whole truth, but I mean, I as part of my job at forces, watch well, really we look at a lot of that stuff. It's interesting. They bring the campaigns out in January, and we, we uh, came by a, a document between the marketing, one of the marketing companies, and the Ministry of Defence, and it talks about how they wanted to use the January blues, weaponise the January blues, for young people, particularly in North England and Scotland, and they target uh, people from poorer areas, as, as you probably know, as your teacher. Um, but within that, well, like when you look at the, the way they make those adverts appealing, it's all about community, mates, solidarity, friendship, and other things as well, adventure, um, social advancement, and so on. But at the core of it, I think, and that really comes out in the recent adverts, is the idea that you can be part of something which is a value. Now, whether or not it is a value, totally questionable. And it's important to question that in light of what we've seen playing out in Afghanistan in the last few weeks. Um, but, uh, but that is the argument they make and they base a lot of the argument on what in some way ideas of maybe not, maybe not socialist ideas but communitarian ideas that this is a place you can go and be with other people who are kind of like you and you can do something of value um, of course as I've said it's kind of squandered that it's a lie in a sense but the fact that they use those values is probably tells a story I would say about human nature even
0: so I suppose like from a personal point of view, then the question I'd like to ask is, um, did you always feel like you were a socialist and you said you felt like you learned some of these values in the military? So I get—I guess the question I'm asking is, were the socialistic values that were in you that you didn't really necessarily have a name for, or did you always know that you were a socialist and then decided to join? Yeah, that's why
1: I'm talking about that with hindsight, really. I think I grew up, believe it or not, with the action, I grew up in the North of England um, and um, in fact, I was in North Yorkshire, rural North Yorkshire, so it wasn't necessarily the, the former industrial heartlands, but at the north of England, these, those are places which have been smashed. And I didn't really have any politics, I think, because of that. Um, there was no tradition in my family, I mean, I'm a child of Thatcher, but no tradition of kind of trade unionism, of solidarity, of uh, big industry and any of the stuff that went with that. So I didn't really have any coherent politics. Um, my parents probably had a mix of quite liberal and quite conservative um, ideas. Um, now my mum is a hardcore, so- hardcore socialist and anti imperialist. Um, she's the far left of the parish council where she lives. But, but at the time, um, I think it's, it's an it's a outgrowth of Thatcherism. You live in this kind of atomized world where you don't really have a, the same sense of community that maybe people did in the past. And you're just kind of flowing around trying to grab ideas and kind of smash them together to make something coherent. So I wouldn't have said I was anything like a socialist at the time. I also wouldn't say I was like particularly right-wing either. I was just apolitical and working class. Um, certainly in the army, I wouldn't have called it socialism at the time, but I would have recognised there was something of value in the idea of a community. Um, it wasn't a political position at all. Um, it was the experience of the war, I think, that made me... My entry point to politics was anti-imperialism. So it wasn't like domestic politics or trade unionism or anything like that. It was um, the experience of um, imperialism, of empire and colonialism, as, we, as it is today. Um, and so from there, I started to develop more sophisticated left politics and start to look at the different kinds of left politics around. Um, and uh, and uh, then when I resisted and said I wasn't going back to Afghanistan, when AWOL came back, got locked up, was very active in the anti-war movement while I was still serving. Then I, then I met loads of people who'd been, you know, who were born left-wing who, or who had been in left-wing movements for years and years. And so it was that. Um, even though I actually was at uni at the time, it was actually the education of their, their, their long experiences of struggle, like the lived experience of struggle. But um, no, I had no politics as a, as a young man and I probably didn't consider myself anything like a socialist when I was in the ranks
0: a lot of the time they're the more interesting stories for me the people who like weren't born into it the people who who grew into it and yeah. used their own experiences and develop their ideas that way and that's happened um we've actually had people who as as children identified as been quite quite right wing you know and even far right people who've made the journey over so it's really it, it is possible to um to kind of develop your ideas and this is why we should be really careful about uh who we have a go at, I suppose? Like, do you, do you think that's a fair thing to call yeah. it
1: There's a tendency, and it's, it's a kind of symptom of the modern left, to write people off and cancel people at the drop of a hat. Like, some people should obviously, if someone's a fascist, card-carrying fascist, then I have no time for them. There are a lot of people, for various reasons, but reasons you can understand, um, like, you know, Thatcherism, capitalism, neoliberalism, um, who have some dodgy ideas, and those ideas come from somewhere. And I'm very... I'm cautious about writing anyone off. Like Literally, if someone turns up in jackboots, then obviously they're a fascist, and so I'm not going to be mates with them. But um, lots of the guys I knew in the military were probably pretty right-wing, and I've watched their arc. I've watched um, through long conversations and interactions. I've watched their politics developing into something much more progressive and, um, and positive. So I'm very cautious about... I, I also think it's a really like middle-class left thing to just write people off. There's an element within the middle class left which kind of dislikes working class people and doesn't really, doesn't really have any time for them. And as someone who's from that background, I have a lot of time for my own, my own class and I will argue with them and have conversations with them forever about um, politics and try and steer people with bad ideas towards what I think are better ideas. I think mean, that's a, a, whatever kind of socialist you are, that's a duty that you have, isn't it, to inform people and give them a sense of where they are in history um and what they can achieve i think it's absolutely fundamental thing that you have to do
0: yeah definitely and, and listen as well because if you listen to their experiences you can often relate them to something like oh that's what you're angry about well yeah you're not angry at the left then but you, and the thing you say as, as well about some people on the left not being uh particularly like in the working class people often they that's quite a liberal thing isn't it it's like mm-hmm. know, oh yes we shall tell them how to behave but we shan't listen that kind hey, of yes.
1: uh thing so exactly yeah yeah, and it—I it, well, see a lot of it, and it really—it really, it really um, jars with me. It really annoys me. Um, but I would—I would, I mean, I would take—you know—there's so many left-lefties I've met over the years who are like book smart, not a degree to their name, um, who've—you know—almost autodidactic, have, have developed their own politics in the real world at, at the coalface, who like a struggle, and I would take any one of those over um, the kind of Oxbridge left any day of the week and that's not say so I know lots of people who are middle class and went to Oxford who are good people as well they, they do exist but um, I always think working class people should never be made to feel like the guests in a working class movement, uh, we're not the guests, we're the people who should be in charge, <laughs> in charge of that thing that's my position.
0: Yeah, absolutely agree. We're all for um, grassroots working class socialism on this channel. So um, there's so many, so many directions I can go in now. And I'm trying to think of like what's going to be, uh, you know, the the best for the people who are watching, because we could probably talk to you for about three days. What I'm really interested in, though, that's um, quite unique to you is how do you make that journey from like being in the military and then making that decision to, Saying, no, I'm not going back and going AWOL and stuff like that, because that must have been not only um, challenging, but really risky as well, I
1: suppose. Yeah, it was a big element of risk um, involved. They, in the end, they were trying to put me away for a, for a long time, tens of years. W- were, I mean, when you're up the charges, that was what I was looking at, potentially. In the end, they rolled over on that. But it was is that, uh, it, because, I mean, I guess because I had no politics, it was actually a moral thing. And you could describe that as conscientious objection. I mean, there are a conscientious objection. We mostly think about conscientious objection in terms of World War I. And it's actually a, a slightly more complex. There's different kinds, conscientious objects or religious or non-religious or, or whatever. Um, but I basically went on tour and I love the army. It's the first time I'd done something which I felt was valuable. I had a bit of money in my pocket. I was kind of, we'd get, you know, we got in good shape um, and we were doing something which I thought was of, of value. Um, And I would have stayed for 22 years, but what actually happened was I went on tour. Um, We were in um, Kandahar, we weren't on the front line, but we were very busy with provisioning, we were providing all the stuff for the operation. Um, And it became clear that our our presence, the presence of the British military in Southern Afghanistan had created an insurgency and that we would hear every day reports from the front line. Um, And it was very clear that this thing, which had been framed as a peacekeeping operation or whatever, there were various rationales we were given for going, had actually caused an insurgency, it was having a really bad impact on the people in Afghanistan. Uh, there were lots of people being killed, lots of people being killed on our side. Uh, a lad from my regiment was killed. Um, it became very clear that this quite literally wasn't what it said on the tin. We'd been given these highfalutin moral justifications, and there were various ones the opium crop, helping brown girls go to school all these very kind of moral things and actually what happened there is we'd caused uh an extremely vicious um insurgency um and that was the pattern that was set but certainly in my time there um that that it was kind of like a seed it wasn't like it didn't just spring into my mind as a fully de- developed political position but i was like actually i don't really agree with this um and i finished my tour got promoted and it was a weird moment because i was Suddenly I was getting a pat on the head, which I've never had before going, oh, you're a good lad, Private Glenton. Now you can be Lance Corporal Glenton. Um, uh, yeah, at the same time, there was this inner thing, looking at this conflict and not having like a, a really complex knowledge of international relations or foreign policy. Going, this is not, this is not right. Um, and so it was, a, it, was, it was probably more after I came back, when you have time, you don't really have any time to think about this stuff on operations. I started to think, actually, I don't really agree with this. And my plan was to just leave, was to just sign off and leave. And I was protected from going on another tour by something called Harmony Guidelines, which means you can't deploy for 18 months after you've done a tour. And I was like, I'm just gonna finish my time, serve my notice, which is a year in the army, and just get out. And then then they decided they would try and redeploy me, at which point I've um, said, well, no, and this is why, and tried to go through the process. and I, in a perfect world, I would have ended up in front of what's called the Conscientious objection Board, which is a thing. There's actually a board for this in the army um, and uh, ideal case, I would have been discharged as it was. They tried to redeploy me. I also had post-traumatic stress disorder from TOR um, and ended up because the, the kind of walls were closing in, doing what a lot of soldiers have done over the years in uh, voting with my boots. So I went on the run, became AWOL. Um, and then over that period, I was at AWOL for about eighteen months. And over that period, I actually started to try and read and understand more of the history of Afghanistan and the history of the British military and the relationship between the two countries. Um, and so, my it became more political then, and it crystallised into something more more political for sure.
0: And what were the what were the risks involved? To you, like obviously, you're risking risking your liberty um and so where did you go as well like how do you how do you keep going for 18 months when you're AWOL I guess
1: they were looking for you yeah well they they basically send someone around your house it's is this is pure British army stuff it's pure like dad's army stuff think British army thinks dad's army they send a guy around your house he knocks on your door my mum was like no fuck off I don't know where he is and then I uh, uh by that time I ended up I was I had loads of money to come back from tour and I disappeared into um, Asia, because I figured um, you could cross borders quite easily, you could be anonymous, there's loads of people travelling there, so went on a massive drink and drug bender as people do when they go AWOL and I remember smoking opium on the banks of the Mekong, like, fucking apocalypse now <laughs> with a fan going over my head uh, so I was there for a bit um, I planned to come back and then I, I was like, nah, I'm not going to go back fuck those guys, I was in a, a state of meltdown and rebellion, a completely directionless rebellion, <laughs> and I um. I met a lot of people there who were going to Australia and they were like, oh, we're going to get these working visas. You can stay out there for like two years, work on a fruit farm or whatever. And So I, uh, I applied in an internet cafe in uh, Bangkok. It's an online form. And there were some questions like, do you have any um, experience with firearms or explosives? Uh, and it was just a tick box. And I was like, no. And then two days later, I got this visa to Australia. Absolutely bizarre circumstances. So I ended up in Australia for another 18 months. Um, and uh, eventually when I'd, um, I'd kind of become more believably conscious, uh, my PTSD had settled down, I'd become more balanced. And I was like, I don't want this hanging over me forever. So I'm going to go back, I'm going to go back and I'm going to take them on. Um, and that's exactly what I did. I flew back in, handed myself back in. My mate, uh, another Lance Corporal was on the front desk and he was like, where the fuck have you been <laughs> for 18 months? Uh, you nutter, and uh, and uh, so yeah. And then I was court-martialed, and the risk. I mean, I suppose uh, the main risks involved were the a lengthy prison sentence. Initially, I was charged with AWOL, and then that was changed to desertion. But then I'd also been speaking to the media, which is illegal when you're in the military. There are laws against speaking to the media because they can't have every Tom, Dick, and Harry just telling people, telling the world how it actually is. They're a bit sensitive about that kind of thing. Um, and so every time they, uh, I was quoted in an article or there was a, I did an interview, some, um, some little Sergeant in the headquarters would print it out and hand it to the CEO. So I had about eight or 10 charges added for speaking to the media, which would be disobeying an order. It comes under this broad heading, disobeying an order, which is very vague, but under the military law, that could have been 10 years of peace. It would have been very hard for them to do that, to do that obviously. But technically that was the maximum sentence attached um, to each charge um, so there was that but by that stage i you know i become um i got involved with stop the war coalition i was doing loads of anti-war stuff speaking on platforms and i kind of had a head of steam up and i was like you put me away put me away for as long as you want but i will still be right and you will still be wrong um and uh eventually we we drew up a defense document which was basically we were gonna use my court-martial to indict them, to indict the British government for for the war on terror, the whole war on terror, Iraq and Afghanistan. We sent this big old document um, to the uh, Service Prosecuting Authority, which is like the Crown Prosecuting Authority, but it's for the military. And um, they went quiet. And then two weeks later, my lawyer rang them up and said, what are you gonna do about these charges? And they they were like, we're gonna drop every charge except the AWOL. Um, and I'd never denied being AWOL, clearly I wasn't physically there, so I couldn't really deny being AWOL. And so they basically, at the 11th hour, they rolled over. They decided they didn't want to have me, Lance Corporal Shipbag, Glenton, um, embarrassing them in a court, martial about the the legalities of the war on terror. And they they dropped all the charges except that AWOL. So in the end, I just, because I pled guilty, I was just sentenced, and I was off to military prison. Um, I got got nine months and did five months up in uh, Colchester, which is the the UK's military prison. What a story. Um,
0: It's funny as well that you mentioned the war on terror, like it wasn't, it was obviously never about that really. It was was about something else. You can't declare war on something stateless. So it's a, a real, really strange use of words anyway. Very. Oh, but you mentioned they're going to Australia as well. like So they've got this war on terror, but they couldn't find you going to a Commonwealth country. Like they.
1: No. And they actually, basically, they asked me those questions about, did I? And another question was, have you ever been part of a terrorist organisation? I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> the British Army's got a bit, bit of a dodgy track record in places. But I basically ticked no to both. And they were just like, here's a visa, mate. So clearly the, the security isn't that stringent anyway. It probably helps. Uh, I mean, Australia, like the UK, is fine with immigration as long as you're white. Um, and so that, that might be that I had a kind of Western-sounding name. I don't know. I don't know what the factors are, but they were quite happy to help me um, come in. So I, yeah, I did another eighteen months doing a doing like construction work and shooting. It was like being a convict straight off the boat. I built it, digging up tree roots, doing like landscape gardening, but kind of heavy industrial stuff. So I was there like um like a indentured labourer with a pickaxe uh, for, uh, for about 18 months and doing various other jobs as well. But uh, no, it was interesting, interesting time.
0: Nothing wrong with that. I've uh, done a bit Thank of kind of labor myself. It's quite fun. Um, yeah. So, uh, and speaking of the war on terror as well in, in Afghanistan and all that, you must feel some sort of sense of vindication, like, but it's not a very nice feeling. I'm, I'm this is my guess, like it, it mustn't feel very nice to be vindicated in the way you have been yeah. with like what's happened over the recent, like, you know, the last month in Afghanistan. Yeah, it's
1: exactly right. It's, it's been hard to kind of describe. It's like um, like I don't feel vindicated because like I almost don't want it to be, I don't want it to have all been wasted in some other utopian world. If it would have been nice if we'd gone to Afghanistan, and everything was hunky-dory. It was never going to happen, obviously, uh, but it's kind of a bitter it's it's like a bitter vindication somehow, if you know, that makes sense. Um lots of us said it. I wasn't the one, one of the ones saying it from the start. I was joining the army when my mum was on the anti-war march and Jeremy Corbyn was giving his speeches and Tony Ben and all those guys. Um but you know I came to that same position through experience 10 years later or so. And so um it's a very it's a bitter truth and there's no joy. I don't I think I don't think anyone Will crow about it or we'll take any joy in the fact that we were proven right because it, it all seems so avoidable. Um, uh, so it's a very sad, it's a very sad kind of vindication, if you know what I mean.
0: Given it was so obvious to so many people, how is it that they've managed to get themselves into the position where they haven't been challenged over this for a long time? Like Afghanistan almost became forgotten; it almost became like this perpetual thing. Some people. Some, like you know it, it, it's half a lifetime for some people or you know yeah. or, you know it's a, it's a long time we've been there. Yeah. And if you think back to how long that conflict's gone on as well with, with Russia and the idea of how it was set up and everything, how have they managed to portray this thing where actually this is okay, this is normal, this is
1: not something that we should be concerned about? I suspect it's kind of about one part of it is just a particular kind of hegemony, isn't it? Like the media for the media in this country? which on defence matters is absolutely appalling for the most part, um, um, which refuses to properly critique the military or the politicians who are doing military things, who lead the wars. And I think a large part of it is that. It's just there's a media which is not critical, which is scared of criticising um, the military. And I, I cover defence, and I think the military, it's just a government department. It's not special. It's not magical. But this, this is bullshit. It should be critiqued like any other um but like you would never have people go no we can't have a go at the dwp because it's special and why is the military um um prized in well, i mean the, the reasons are obvious is because we're a very militarized country and an imperialist country um but the, when you look at it objectively you're right it's bizarre it's absolutely bizarre um, and you just look at the quality of journalism around defense there are, i mean there are some good People like the guys who declassified, who are UK who are friends of mine, do fantastic, penetrating defence journalism, which is why they've been blacklisted twice by the MOD. Um, but on the whole, defence journalism is absolutely appalling uh, in this country, and there's a strong sense of deference and an unwillingness to critique um, things. Anyone dressed in camouflage, basically, and I really had a sense of that. I can remember my mum was sending me out press clippings to Afghanistan. Um, about incidents which had happened, which I'd heard about from directly, and going, this doesn't at all reflect the situation on the ground. Uh, these are reports from mainstream newspapers, and they they just don't reflect what's happening in this in this country and in this war. Um, so part of it is that, and I, suppose, I suppose that's the part I can speak to most strongly because I'm a journalist as well. I later became a journalist. And part of the motivation for that was that defense is covered so badly, and with such deference, like, um, Like, if you're going to be a defense journalist, I think the problem a lot of mainstream defense journalists they kind of want to be close to the military, they want to go to the cocktail parties, they wanted to be invited on the defense secretary's foreign trip and hang out with Ben Wallace or whoever it is um, at the time, and and that's not critical journalism. Um, And there are, I mean, there are other, there are all kinds of interests which were invested in just the Afghanistan war. Um, not being properly reported or critically reported, the arms firms make huge amounts of money out of it. Um, as well, the generals, the generals increasingly have tended to point at the politicians and go, "It's their fault." But we should remember the generals pushed for the maximum involvement in the wars, absolute maximum involvement in the wars, um, and they are exactly to blame. And they only moan when they've left the military and they've got a book to sell. Then they'll be like, "Oh, I was critical of this the whole time." And I always think, oh, if I, as Lance Corporal Scumbag, could be critical, uh, why couldn't you? You're a general. You could probably get away with it. (laughs) You could probably be publicly critical of the wars. Um, But you didn't. Which probably tells you something about the moral health of those people, whether it's the media, the arms firms, big death, the defence firms, big death, as I like to call them, or politicians. Um, They're they're kind of inured to going to war, and they're very... um, I'm willing to be critical about
0: it, I think. I want to explore this a little bit more, but um, firstly, I just want to ask you something about politicians now. Our old, uh, our old MP was on the Defence Select Committee and uh, Phil Wilson, who was the su- successor to Tony Blair. And he, uh, he used to love to go down and get dressed up in um, military gear and sit in an airplane and stuff like that. And yeah. he he wasn't in the military. He'd done some sort of one-day training course or something. What do people in the military think of it? Think of people when they do things like
1: that. So in the military, we have a name for people who cosplay as soldiers. We call them Walter mitties waltz, and it's based on a really old James Thurber short story. It's published in the New New Yorker in the 30s about a guy. There's a film about. It. They remade it a film about it with Sean Penn and Ben Stiller, and it's a, it's about a fantasist, and his fantasies interfere with his normal life. So that's what we call Walter Mitties, or what we call those people. I think the thing you're referring to is actually very interesting. It's called the Armed Forces Parliamentary Scheme. I'm, I'm working on something about it at the moment. And it's, um, it's kind of, it's been around since about 1989, uh, but it was relaunched in 2012 or 2013. Um, and it's basically, it's framed as um, some MPs and peers haven't been in the military and they should go along for a day clown climb around on a fucking tank fire a gun whatever and then they'll be able to contribute more to debates and on the face of it i mean i don't there's some some of that's fairly agreeable maybe they should be exposed to different kinds of jobs people do i'd like to see them doing precarious work with uber drivers and you know whatever they should do all those kind of things Uh, but actually behind this kind of what seems like a fairly logical front the Armed forces parliamentary scheme is basically a kind of um, a lot of it, a lot of the, the three main sponsors are like BAE Systems, uh, Augusta Westland and Lockheed or someone like that. Um, so there are lots of arms firms behind it. And it's, I, my argument would be that it's basically a lobbying thing. The MPs get a day out. They get some cool photos of them in uniform or sitting in a helicopter looking kind of military. Uh, and behind it, there will be lots of arms firms standing with goodie bags if you go through some of the pictures of those events, you'll see guys with BAE systems, high visibility jackets on and they're getting lectures from BAE systems employees. Um, So it's really dubious stuff. Um, Yeah, but we are generally military people have a very low opinion of people who pretend to be soldiers. It's a big no, no to to kind of pretend um, to do that. Sometimes that's because people take a lot of pride in it, obviously. And that, that's a different question about why people take so much pride in military service. But, um, yeah, cosplaying as a squaddie or a sailor or whatever is really, really poorly thought of. And I'll be honest, it looked fucking stupid. Like I'll never forget Liz Kendall standing dynamically on top of a tank with hands on hips in badly fitting combat, combat uniform. Uh, and I think the sun picked it up at the time. It was when she was running the leadership contest. <laughs> 2.5% Kendall, I think she was called, because um, she did really badly, does not she? But it was like, um, Corbyn, she's coming for you. This, this Obviously, this cretin um, stood on a tank trying to look uh, military. Um, but that's pretty much the theme of the, whole, of the whole scheme, to be honest. It's a good opportunity for MPs to get um, cool photos of them holding a gun. Uh, but behind the scenes, it's actually a load of arms firms lobbying MPs um, because they've got free access for a couple of days, you
0: know. She got four and a half percent. Bless her. Yeah, no. Sorry, oh, uh, sorry. It's Phil Wilson, Phil Wilson, and the CLP uh, did nominate her as well. So they're all in it together. Um, so speaking of this kind of glorification of of the military that happened, I was speaking just before we came on. I was telling you about like when I when I left school. Um, speaking of people like my granddad, uh, things like Remembrance Sunday would be a very solemn thing. very uh very quiet sort of like it wouldn't be a celebration at all it'd be and my granddad like you know taught me a lot about the the real problems with war and he, he certainly wasn't an advocate for it and certainly never wanted to see it again and it was very much a never again thing and then i became a teacher and all of a sudden we were doing these kind of parades and things in school and it seemed much more glorification of the military Um, And that was under a Labour government. That was while we were invading Iraq and while we were invading Afghanistan in the noughties. And you just think, well, you know, where did that come from? And I I suppose I'd like to ask you as well. When those people from World War Two were dying off, do you think they took advantage of the idea that they weren't there to tell those stories anymore
1: to the extent that they were? Yeah. Dead men tell no tales. I think it's true. I think that generation of World War Two. It's important to understand that the army of World War Two is a very different army to the one we have today. There's a tendency because World War Two and the army of World War II are seen as a kind of moral thing, arguably correctly. I mean, I don't. You know, I agree with some of that. We had to fight fascism. We've got no problem with fighting fascists at all. Um, um, they, they try and take that kind of moral part of it and airbrush it onto the modern British army, which is a small professional, quite backwards, very culturally separatist force. It's not the vast million-strong conscript army of World War II which fought fascism. But we spend as much time um, helping fascist-type regimes. Uh, now, Saudi Arabia being just one example um, uh, these days. So the idea that those two can be conflated is ridiculous. And yet they do try and do it. They try and say, almost like there's some magical, connecting, spiritual thing between... The same people who were kicking doors in in Helmand Province were the were the lads who stormed the beaches on D-Day. Absolute fucking bullshit. Totally different organisations, totally different people. And, but I think that Second World War generation were very different as well, um, because they came back and kind of remade Britain. Um, and what they wanted was the the Labour settlement, which has many great things and many limitations. But it, you know that that was what that generation, and not just the soldiers, but the people at home. Because we have to remember, Afghanistan's very far away and remote, whereas people in the, in the UK were bombed. The war was much closer, like London was bombed, Bristol was bombed, Liverpool was bombed and so on. I'm saying it's a very different, uh, a very different thing. I, um, I think on remembrance, I, I, I see it, I think as we were saying before, it should be a funeral. The tone of remembrance is a funeral. And the original sentiments of remembrance, as you say, correctly, were never again. That was, Those were the sentiments of the first remembrance in, um, in what, 1920, 1921, I think the proper ceremony style. Um, and that's been completely lost. And one of the reasons for that is basically failure, failure in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, that led, Gordon Brown was a particular figure, and other group at the Murdoch press, the generals, various big charities, Health for Heroes and stuff, were, were kind of the... The forces which shape this new narrative. We did very badly in Iraq and Afghanistan, as we've seen. It's beyond doubt now. Um, and the public, not in a really theoretical anti-imperialist way, but the public just didn't like the wars. Like mum and granddad at home didn't want to see nineteen-year-olds coming back with no legs. It's not like highfalutin theoretical position. It's just a basic moral position. Those wars were deeply unpopular because they didn't really improve security, and they had a heavy cost for a group of people who are well thought of, young soldiers. There's a certain affection for young soldiers in this country. Um, and one of the responses to this was to try and conflate, try and make out that criticism of the wars was disrespectful to the troops, try and get, you know, mix these things up. Um, and that was part of what emerged in the mid to late 2000s. There's a report that came out in 2008, fronted by Gordon Brown, called The Recognition of Our Armed Forces in Society, report which talks about all these things. It talks about the unpopularity of the war and the need to kind of use the troops as a shield against cri- criticism of foreign policy. Very cynical, very cynical stuff. Um, and so they set about doing that. And that's around the time you see the development of, um, not just the narrative, but the you see the, the big military charities come to the fore. You see the Murdoch press start to do lots of um, puff pieces about how great the military is, how great the military charities are. Um, And you see that barrier starting to be thrown up. And it was basically an attempt to make criticism of the wars appear as if it was in some way disrespecting the troops, which is bizarre to me as a veteran because at the time in Afghanistan and Iraq, soldiers, sailors and airmen were being like, why are we here? They were saying the same thing. Um, And so, yeah, it's a bit bit of sleight of hands. and it, it's, it's basically, and they're also, also, you have to think, they're not just thinking about, they weren't just thinking about those wars. They're thinking about wars in the future, which they may want to conduct. They're thinking about Iran. They're thinking about um, North Korea and places like that. Um, so, so it's important to think about militarism in, those, in the longer view, that they're, they're thinking if, if, if war becomes unpopular or untenable, it's gonna affect what we want to do in our aggressive foreign policy down the line. Um, and so that certainly that was what um, the politicians, um, the military and so on, and the right-wing newspapers, the gut Press, the Murdoch Press, were definitely thinking about that stuff down the line as well.
0: It's really interesting you say that, that about what people thought at the time. We did a, an Afghanistan special on this channel um, a few weeks ago, and we had a refugee from Afghanistan, uh, Muhammad Azif. Mm-hmm. And we also had an ex-military person who, who uh, I'm friends with, uh, Gary Coleman, and uh, they oh, were Gary, agreeing yeah. on everything. Do you know Gary? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, do, yeah. Yeah, well, really I know him on talk... Twitter. He's a good character. He's a good character. Yeah, he's, officer, but, yeah, he's, uh, yeah he's, he's good in real life as well. He's uh, he's spot on. But he's, um, they, they were agreeing on everything, absolutely everything. And, and I don't think that would be the position that people would assume uh, from someone who had been there in British military in Afghanistan and. Uh, and with an Afghanistan refugee, but yeah, yeah. The, the agreement was there, and uh, is that something you found as
1: well? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, I went to Afghanistan as a young soldier, obviously in 2006, but I went back last year, unarmed, uh, without the kind of barrier of of a military role as a journalist, and spoke to Afghans, and we were very much in agreement um, on the big stuff about the the um, about the war and the occupation. Like You couldn't get a cigarette paper between us, to be honest, in terms of how we thought about the previous 20 years um, of war and occupation and the effects that it had had on people there and people here. And I'm always at pains to, pain to point out, obviously, I know lots of people who suffer very badly, military people who were injured, um, some who were killed, some who subsequently took their lives, lots who have mental health stuff. But it's important to always point out that the, soldiers are secondary victims and afghans are the primary victims we want to avoid that kind of vietnam thing post vietnam thing of the problem with vietnam is that it's not that it killed a million vietnamese it's that it made our soldiers kind of sad the afghans are always the prim- primary victims in this thing and soldiers are victims as well i, I often i think but are yeah, are secondary um, but yeah like whenever i've met afghans in afghanistan but also afghan diaspora from all over the world. Canada, America, in this country, um, I find we, we generally agree on the problems of the war and the occupation. Yeah, um, following on from that, like you, you, mentioned,
0: uh, you mentioned earlier on about selling arms and things like that. And we've got a few arms fairs coming up in yeah. the near future or when people watch out, it might be in the recent past or And there's always one on the horizon. There isn't. There There are always these arms fairs, arms fairs where we're trying to sell weapons to regimes like Saudi Arabia and things. So, where does where does this fit in?
1: I think uh, there's a there's a really famous and cool guy, Smedley Butler. You might have heard of him. I don't know if your viewers have. He was a highly decorated uh, U.S. Marine general, a major general, very senior ranking officer, 33 years in the, the. US Marine Corps and he wrote this fantastic expose called war is a racket and he talked about um, how money is made out of war how he talked about, you know the rack, you know how, how profit uh, and war war fighting go hand in hand um, together and it's not just um, of course it's weapons it's missiles and stuff like that also if you look at Afghanistan virtually everything was by some kind everything all the facilities we had were provided by some kind of massive defense contracts, whether it's food, whether it's sewage, whether it's road building, whether it's private security, Um, the the actual industry is so vast and worth billions upon billions of dollars or pounds, however you want to um, figure it up, um, every year. And everywhere we went, just in our base in Afghanistan was firms like KBR, uh, all the facilities were run by a firm called Kellogg, Brown and Root. And Iraq, my friends who served in Iraq, the same, these massive firms are making massive amounts of money. And it comes back to the idea about Spendy Butler's idea. It's a racket. The whole thing is a fucking racket. And people are making money out of it and benefiting from it. But it isn't me, Tommy Atkins, Lance Corporal Dickhead on the ground. And it's certainly not the Afghans. Um, though some, some corrupt Afghan warlords and politicians will have made a lot of money out of it as well. But your average Afghan on the street, if you like. Um, no, absolutely no benefit for them. But never forget that these... As an institution, war is just so massively profitable, and and it's important to, to weigh that up to look at look at the figures of um I think Loki, my man Loki, put up some fascinating figures a week ago or so about the bottom lines from the Afghan War, Lockheed, BAE, Corps, all these huge um, Elbit Systems, the Israeli one that's based as well, uh, these huge profit margins which have been made out of um of various wars, but also the Afghan War. In particular like this stuff is profitable someone's selling the boots and the guns and the uniforms and the water bottles and the weapon um right up to the the fighter jets and the apache helicopters um it's a racket man it's a whole racket um and that you, you need to confront that we need to stare into the abyss a little bit there and confront that um every time we're given um, all kinds of moral highfalutin moral justifications for going to war. Like, listen to those, and then and then look at the, the potential profit margins and the actual profit margins, and and go which one is a more which we're rational, do I believe, for going to war? Um, when you look at the people giving those moral justifications, the Borises, the Blairs, the Campbells, uh, the Trumps, and the Bidens, and so on. You know, let's just be sensible here. It, just be sensible. Like the, the idea that we go around the world kicking people's doors in um, for moral reasons is really utopian. It's really like way off utopian shit. These people are always like, "Oh, the left is so utopian." Like that stuff is like pure fantasia. <laughs> pure fantasia. <laughs> the idea that the uh, First Battalion the Parachute Regiment is a kind of feminist organisation which goes around rescuing women. And like, have you met one, Para? Have you met? Have you met the? I have. These are not. These are not. Um, this is not what they do. It's not what they're for. They're a blunt instrument, um, you know. So you really have to to um, uh, use exercise some reason and look at look at how war actually functions and who profits from it.
0: It's an, it's another example as well of something that's very like publicly funded, but they're very keen on the idea of you know the the negative effects of war being dealt with by a charity. And it's kind of what we're seeing right. at the moment. We're seeing it with the NHS at the moment, aren't we? We're seeing, like, lots of people doing little walks for the NHS and trying to raise money for the NHS. And, you yeah, the NHS isn't a charity. The yeah, NHS yeah. has charities attached to it. But it's the same kind of idea, isn't it? Like, well, actually, the people can club together to do that. They don't realise that they've
1: actually already paid. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, a terrifying, it's a terrifying thing. You kind of see it, I think the military charities, and there are, like, 1,500 military charities in this country with about three billion of cash floating around, some big, some small. Um, But I think that the charity thing was a way to, um, because big charities are neoliberal corporations, they're massive corporations. It's a way to like neoliberalize aftercare while packaging it in a kind of militarized, we love the troops, bullshit package. Uh, And there's a degree of that, it's slightly different with Captain Tom, and I write about Captain Tom in the new book. I've got a chapter called The Kidnapping of Captain Tom. And I say, I mean, Captain Tom, I suspect he was an officer. He was probably a Tory. I don't think he was probably a dec- decent guy as well. I mean, I don't know the guy. But there was something about the, that mixture of, like, old World War II veteran who we can all worship and the idea that the NHS is framed as a kind of private ch- or a charity interest. It's something which re- kind of really captures modern Britain as well but it's also deeply uh, insidious uh, the idea that this and it because of course it was captain tom's and harry leslie smith's generation though so those are two very different characters who um who fought for the nhs who wanted the nhs and wanted the welfare state and wanted like really radical shit like council houses you know it's part of their legacy which is being chipped away at in that case by by a veteran of the same war so it's, it's a real um example of just how messed up British politics is um, and British culture is now.
0: Yeah, couldn't agree more with that. It is an utter, utter mess, but you referenced there your book. So we're going to talk about your book for a little while now. Um, so what's the, what's the premise of your book? Because I'm like after the things you've told me, I'm really looking forward to
1: having a good read of that. So what's your book about? So it's called Veteranhood, um, Rage and Hope in uh, British Ex-Military Life. And basically, I was really pissed off that veterans are often, in fact, sometimes on the left as well, particularly the kind of better off left, um, as either always small C conservatives or kind of fascists who are irredeemable, who are are all thugs. And I know, and you know, and Gary Coleman knows, because I've had this conversation with him as well, um, that that's just not the case, that veterans have always been part of the left's composition that working class veterans, their natural home should be and often has been the left. Because when you go into the military, you come up against the officer class, against the absolute power and injustice um, in a way that's probably more um, unrestrained than in civilian life a lot of the time. Uh, And I I kind of looked around me and said, no, there are lots of, I know lots of left wing veterans. And it's always been the case there are lots of ex-military people on the left. They've been involved in movements from the Putney debates Um, There was a veteran killed at Peterloo um, after the First and Second World War and so on, always veterans on the left. Um, And so I wanted to talk about those people and I wanted to talk about their descendants, so people like myself. Um, And I also wanted to try and address why, when veterans do end up with far-right politics, why that is the case. Um, So those are two of the themes, two of the themes of the book. There's a a lot in there, I'm talking about a lot of things. So we talk about Captain Tom, the Captain Tom phenomenon, talk about veterans on the far right talk about Johnny Mercer and the new kind of class of posh officer MPs. Um, so Johnny Mercer, Tom Tugendhat, Tobias Elwood, people like that. But particularly Johnny Mercer, because he's such a ridiculous... I call him Commando Alan Partridge, because he's a, such a ridiculous character in every way. And he's, there's so many brilliant... I mean, it, it, it's easy, it's easy to lampoon him, because he is a buffoon. There's so many brilliant quotes from him. Like, he was once asked, have you ever done cocaine? And he was like you don't put diesel in a Ferrari, you know, proper like Alan Partridge stuff, um, but also Ann Middleton, so I'm also looking at the, the kind of celebrity SAS phenomenon, which is bizarre because the SAS is supposed to be secret, special, for, and now we have these really high-profile guys, also buffoons like like Ann Middleton, particularly him, I think the other guys are, don't really bother me, but something about Ann Middleton really really gets my go, um, and he. But also he's he's a product of that same system. He was like a brutalized boy soldier, viciously bullied when he was first joined the military. He's kind of a product of all that as well. So he's a way to to talk about why some veterans are, and are angry and are sexist and homophobic and racist. Um, And so there's a bunch of different topics, but really I'm trying to, I'm trying to kind of rescue the veteran from the right and the far right. That's not, uh, veterans are part of the left's composition and they always have been and they should be again and they should be welcomed. Veterans should be welcomed. There should be none of this like, oh, if you've served in the military, you're obviously a murderer. This kind of juvenile A-level politics. It's just not true. And I know it's kind of a theme that we've been talking about here. That very rarely comes from working class people on the left because you will have be, been to school with guys and be mates with people who joined the military and you know they are a varied bunch. They're not just one thing. Uh, when I get that, normally it's from a real kind of, a kind of I call them the left posers, This kind of posy kind of left politics, which is very quick to just write off and cancel whole, whole groups of people, ex-military people among them. Um, and so I, there's some quite um, strongly worded attacks actually on that kind of left-wing politics. Um, and it's kind of again, it's in in a way I'm trying to say what trying to say what I said earlier or alluded to earlier is that. Um, working-class people are not guests on the left. Uh, They're not guests in working-class movements. You are. You know, you can come in, but these are our movements, Um, and so you have to respect the rules and play the game. Um, So part of it is about that. I'm trying to reclaim the idea of a left-wing veteran identity, which has loads of really fascinating history in this country.
0: So, yeah, I'm really interested to hear about that in this country, especially because I know, like, obviously um, in Vietnam... The protests in, uh, like, as soon as they embraced the veteran, they got a lot further. That's, that's about yeah, right, yeah.
1: isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, 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 the Vietnam example is really interesting because it's um, basically there's, there's the... Every defeated army comes up with a stab in the back myth about why it lost. And in Vietnam, it was the hippies. The hippies and the women and the liberals and the communists we, we couldn't possibly have lost the war because we're racially superior to those people. That was the, that was the rationale from the American ruling really class. And so what must have happened is that there was an enemy within. And we all know about that term. Uh, and it will happen with this war. It happened with Vietnam. Um, it happened for the Germans after the First World War. It happened for the Confederates after the American Civil War. It always becomes this idea of a kind of feminized enemy, a left-wing enemy who has betrayed the country from within.
0: Um, and that's a big, a big part of it. Um, speaking like uh, we, we've mentioned, it's the third time I'm going to mention Gary, so he's going to be absolutely delighted about this. <laughs> he's he, he's uh, he's he's not particularly um, let's see, he's not particularly big-headed. He's quite uh, he's quite shy about the the good things he's done, but he was yeah. absolutely brilliant on the doors for us around here when it came to tackling people who would say that Jeremy Corbyn was uh, a traitor and and things like that. And we had people coming out and they threw a leaflet at Gary, they threw this leaflet at him and said, how dare you? I I, I know about Northern Ireland and things like that. And he's like, well, I served in Northern Ireland. And I'll tell you what, Jeremy Corbyn is not um, anti-British. He's not like, you know, and uh, it really, really took the sting out of that situation. That person ended up feeling quite sheepish. Do you have any like
1: kind of stories like that or any experiences like that? I think people people um, make lots of assumptions about veterans, don't they? And in a way, it's kind of funny. I think you will find, like Gary, a lot of left wing veterans don't do the right wing veteran thing of having like "veteran" on their Twitter profile. And we don't like. It's not that we're ashamed of it, but it's like it's just really cringe. It's really, really cringy to lead with like "Brexit veteran, no nonsense, common sense" on your fucking Twitter bio. Um, And so you, it only really comes up when you see right wing veterans gobbing off. Being like I served this country and Jeremy Corbyn is a is and like I wish Jeremy Corbyn was more anti-British to be honest. He's too nice. <laughs> but um, yeah, and it really it really stumps people when they come across someone. It's like a real cognitive dissonance. The idea that a veteran could be left wing. Because that idea is so has such a tight hold on the kind of imaginary now um, that all veterans hate Jeremy Corbyn, basically because of a load of made-up bullshit about him supporting the IRA. Um, um, so yeah. I mean, I've come across so many examples. It's hard to pin one down. But um, but yeah, look, a lot of examples of just the cognitive dissonance of right-wing veterans when you go. In fact, I can remember I canvassed in Putney, It was the only place I canvassed, canvassed in the 2019 election. And I was desperate, desperate to find a veteran on the door. Because this, um, this uh, I'd seen this poster, it was a sun arc. Not that I read the sun, but it had come up. Um, and it was like a veteran had laminated a, a bit of paper and gone, no Labourer knocking on this door. I'm a veteran, da, 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 as if that was the answer. So I was desperate. We went canvassing in Putney. And I was like, I hope I get one. I hope I get one. Uh, and about, it was pissing down. Obviously, it was winter. It's not long before the election. Knock on the door and a guy comes out. And I was like, I'm here from Labour. And he's like, he, he's like, squares up to me a little bit. And he's like, I am a veteran. As if that was the answer. As if that was the answer to the question. And I was like, so am I. And I tried to engage him in conversation. Uh, I was like, "So, what, you, what were you in, mate, and all that?" And he just—we looked at each other for like ten seconds, and he was just completely stumped by the fact that I was declaring myself as a veteran as well. And then he just, not breaking eye contact, he gradually just like shut the door, <laughs> and that was it. That was it. I don't know what I expected to be honest. Maybe a long kind of back and forth, but uh, and it, it's a thing like there's it's just a lack of nuance. Like the, the military is a conservative institution. Some people will go into it, maybe even the majority of people come out with conservative ideas. Lots of people don't. It's like, but it's the idea that there's an absolute, like no veteran would ever. is like a weird but absolute position. It just doesn't really reflect reality. Because I've met so many, so many people from all eras, from World War II, all the way through Northern Ireland uh, National Service, all the way through the first Gulf the Falklands. So many who, who were, socialists or anarchists or communists of some description and it's completely understandable that they would be i mean why what you know the ratios are probably similar to to just british society n- normally like some people left wing some people right wing but some people have a real kind of be up their ass about this fantasy that having worn a uniform automatically makes you either a small c tory at least or a kind of squadrismo type fascist who wants to shag statues and 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 you know. Do unspeakable things to the Union Jack. I mean, it's just bizarre to me, and it doesn't reflect British history at all. As I say, there's always been veterans on the left, and they've always been a central part of the left's composition.
0: One of our chief uh, statue shaggers around here actually, we've got photos of him in a Nazi uniform. It's like well, um, unbelievable stuff. But he's always invoking this like veterans image. He's not a veteran. Um, cool. He's uh, yeah, he's he's forever doing that but there's a nice photo of him wearing this like a uh, neo-nazi uniform um like and he's and, he, and he's trying to like defend monuments about world war two and that like mate you're lost uh, <laughs> 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 that's uh that seems to be where we are as a country i think that sums up like what a lot of people's attitudes are at the moment i'm gonna finish off by asking you one final question which is what would you like what would you like to see on the left what would you like to see socialists do and what hopes do you have for the future that's a big question but we'll just pick it pick something in there
1: it is a big question my my better half is a historian of revolutionary defeat of franco spain and the anarchists there um, so she has all kinds of profound thoughts on how to deal with defeat and that is that is what we're dealing with um but i'll try and muster muster some of my own um uh my feeling is um, we have to accept that, for now, um, the parliamentary route is closed. I don't think there's going to be a time when we, we can force our way back. It was an accident, an accident of fate. We, accidentally, a socialist was elected the head of the Labour Party. I and mean, it doesn't mean I'm not going to be like, oh, everyone fucking leave Labour, and start, like, proselytising about this or that. But I think we have to accept that community stuff is where it's going to be for now. And that was also what was missing in that project. It became so caught up in, like, high-power politics, all the community stuff, which was Corbyn's strength. Like, he's a community guy. We know that um, was kind of ignored. Um, um, so we, we need to build in communities. And I always remember what Loki said. Loki's a, obviously a poet, a very poetic yeah. man. He says, um, organize in person. Go off Twitter, organize in person. Find people, connect with people in your communities or wherever in your workplace, whatever. And that's the route to power for, for your community and through your workplace. Um, um, I, I suppose on a more, I mean, <laughs> well, so like I, said, I would like to see another missed opportunity. Where are all the working class voices? Where are all the working class voices in, um, in the emerging? like some, some left-wing media is better than others, uh, but where there, there seems to be a lack, a lack of working class voices. And then some of the calculations I see being made are uh, strange. It's like, oh, I suppose, and it's a very basic thing. I'm not a sophisticated theorist. I'm like, if I'm going to do something politically, the calculation is, is this good for me or is this good for the class? And it should be something that's good for the class. But we have to subsume ourselves a little bit. But we've all got egos, you know, fair enough, but we have to subsume ourselves into the broader thing. And that's kind of where we need to be right now. Within that, I mean, where are all the, the, the you know, as left-wing veterans um, have important things to say about the wars? You know, it's a really important strand of what the left does, talking about foreign policy and empire and imperialism. Um, and I would like to see more veterans bringing their, their real life experience of those things um, to the fore. Certainly some of that's come out of writing the book was that there are loads of us and we all have big, important ideas and things to say. Uh, so it's about developing a kind of um, platform for us to do that as part of the anti-imperialist movement in its various hues and colours. So that's something I'd like to see happen as well. Um, to get veterans back, um, to get some, you know, v- more veterans on platforms. So it's not just me or a handful of people who are a bit gobby, which I am, but bring all these other voices through as well. But I suppose the key thing is um, building your community, building your workplace, uh, and build cultural stuff as well. It's another thing that was missing from. From they did a little bit of it with Corbynism, but where's all the cultural stuff? Like that working class people read, they like films, they like, you know, sports and stuff like that. Where, where's all that stuff? all those things used to be thriving years ago. Um, and I think we need to get that stuff back, the kind of cultural community um, stuff. I'd like to see more effort put into that.
0: That sounds like uh, something that's right up our street. So um, if anyone wants to do anything like that on Socialist Think Tank, please do get in touch because that is what we're all about, giving working class people a voice, giving underrepresented people a voice, um if we're going to talk about palestine we we'll get palestinians on if we're going to talk about yemen we'll get yemen uh, people from yemen on so um and if we're going to talk about veterans if we want to do socialist think tank veterans that would be something we'd be up for too um don't forget everyone at home to like share and subscribe to this and make sure that you know that you can become a member of socialist think tank for free we are a socialist organization we do accept donations as well cuz we do have bills but um if you want to get involved in Socialist Think Tank, please do um, go to socialistthinktank.com and you will find everything you need there. Joe, I want to say thank you so much for this. You've been absolutely incredible and I'll be really looking out for everything that you do because uh, there's I could have interviewed you for about 40 hours, I think, and I'd still not get to the bottom
1: of it. So. Uh, you have me back on, man. If I'm back on now, come on at something. But thank Thanks you. So, thank you all on. for having me on. I love, I love what you do. The red flag flying here